Chapter Four of The Devil's Garden by W. B. Maxwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com. Chapter Four. The parquetry all around the square of carpet was so smooth that Dale had slipped a foot and nearly come down when he entered the room and bowed to his judges. And now he moved with extreme caution when they told him to withdraw to the window. There were three seated at the table, and none of the three was the postmaster general. Two of them were obviously bigwigs, so big at any rate that his fate lay in their hands, and the other one was a secretary, not the general secretary, not even a gentleman, if one could draw any inference from his deferential tone and the casual manner in which the others addressed him. He was a sandy person, not unlike rigid, but rather older and much fatter. Once a quiet young gentleman, a real gentleman, although apparently acting just as a clerk, had been in and out of the room. He had given Dale a half-smile, and it had been welcome as a ray of sunlight on the darkest day of winter. Instinct told Dale that this nice young man sympathized with him, as certainly as it told him that his judges were unsympathetic. He stood now in the deep bay window, as far as possible from the table, pretending not to listen while straining every nerve to catch the words that were being spoken over there. His blood was hurrying thickly, his heart beat laboriously, his collar stuck clamily to his perspiring neck. His sense of bodily fatigue was as great as if he had run a mile race, and yet one might say that the interview had scarcely begun. What would he be like before it was over? He summoned all his courage in order to go through with it gamely. You can't have this sort of thing. The words had reached him distinctly, spoken by the one they called Sir John, and the one that Sir John called Colonel said with equal distinctness, Certainly not. Dale's heart beat more easily. As he hoped and believed, they must be talking of the soldier. Then the heartbeats came heavy again. Were they talking of him and not of the soldier? He caught a few other broken phrases of enigmatic import, such as storm in teacup, trouble caused, no complaints, and then the voices were lowered and he heard no more of the conversation at the table. Presently he saw that the secretary was producing a fresh file of papers, and at the same moment quite inexplicably his attention wandered. He had brought out a handkerchief, and while with a slow mechanical movement he rubbed the palms of his hands, he noticed and thought about the furniture and decoration of the room. Clock, map, and calendar, some busts on top of a bookless bookcase, red turkey carpet, the treacherous parquetry, and these stiff-looking chairs, really that was all. The emptiness and tidiness surprised him, and he began to wonder what the postmaster general's room was like. Surely there would be richer furniture and more litter of business there. Then, with a little nervous jerk, as of his internal machinery starting again after a breakdown, he felt how utterly absurd it was to be thinking about chairs and desks at such a moment. He must pull himself together, or he was going to make an ass of himself. Now, if you please. They were calling him to the table. He slowly marched across to them and stood with folded hands. Well now, Mr. Dale, the colonel was speaking while Sir John read some letters handed to him by the secretary. 
we have gone into this matter very carefully, and I may tell you at once that we have come to certain conclusions. Yes, sir. Dale found himself obliged to clear his throat before uttering the two words. His voice had grown husky since he last spoke. You have caused us a lot of trouble, really an immense amount of trouble. Dale looked at the colonel unflinchingly, and his voice was all right this time. Trouble, sir, is a thing we can't none of us get away from, not even in private affairs, much less in public affairs. No, but there is what is called taking trouble, and there is what is called making trouble. And the best public servants, Mr. Dale, this was Sir John who had unexpectedly raised his eyes, are those who take most and make least. And he lowered his eyes and went on reading the documents. First, said the colonel, there is your correspondence with the staff at Rothaven. Here it is. We have gone through it carefully, and there's plenty of it. Well, the plain fact is, it has not impressed us favorably, that is, so far as you are concerned. Sorry to hear it, sir. No, I must say that the tone of your letters does not appear to be quite what it should be. Indeed, sir, I thought I followed the usual forms. That may be. It is not the form, but the spirit. This is an arrogance, a determination not to brook censure. No censure was offered, sir. No, but your tone implied that you would not in any circumstances accept it. Only because I knew I hadn't merited it, sir. But don't you see that subordination becomes impossible when each officer... Sir John interrupted his colleague. Mr. Dale, perhaps short words will be more comprehensible to you than long ones. Dale flushed and spoke hurriedly. I'm not without education, sir, as my record shows. I won the Rowland Hill fourth-class annual and the divisional prize for English composition. Sir John and the colonel exchanged a significant glance, and Dale, making a clumsy bow, went on very submissively. However you are good enough to word it, sir, I shall endeavor to understand. Then, said Sir John, with a sudden crispness and severity, the opinion I have derived from the correspondence is that you were altogether too uppish. You had got too big for your boots. Sorry that should be your opinion, sir. It is the opinion of my colleague, too, said Sir John sharply. The impudence of a little jack in office. I'm the king of the castle. I employed no such expression, sir. No, but you couldn't keep your temper in writing to your superiors any more than you could in managing the ordinary business of your office. Who makes the allegation? Unconsciously, Dale had raised his voice to a high pitch. That's what I ask. Let's have facts, not allegations, sir. Or, said Sir John calmly and gravely, any more than you can keep your temper now. And he leaned back in his chair and looked at Dale with fixed attention. Dale's face was red. He opened and shut his mouth as if taking gulps of air. Sir John smiled and continued very quietly and courteously. You must forgive me, Mr. Dale, if by my brusqueness and apparent lack of consideration I put you to a little test. But it seemed necessary. You see, as to Rodhaven, the gravamen of their charge against you. Charge? Dale's voice had dropped to a whisper. Do they lodge a charge against me, sir, in spite of my record? The report is, of course, strictly and confidential, and it is not perhaps my duty to inform you as to its details. I thought if a person's accused, he should at least know his indictment, sir. Sir John smiled and nudged the colonel's elbow. Uh, then, Mr. Dale, it merely amounts to this. 
they say you are unquestionably an efficient servant, but that your efficiency, at any rate in the position you have held of late, has been marred by what seem to be faults of temperament. They believe, and we believe, that you honestly try to do your best, but, well, you do not succeed. I'll be glad to know where I've failed, sir. Mr. Ridget, he said he found everything in apple pie order. That was Mr. Ridget's very own word. Who is Mr. Ridget? Your inspector, sir, what you sent to take over. Ah, yes, but he no doubt referred to the office itself. What I am referring to is a much wider question, the necessity of avoiding friction with the public. We have to remember that we are servants of the public and not its masters. Now, in country districts, you were at Portsmouth, weren't you, before you went to Rodchurch? Yes, sir. Well, of course, in the poorer parts of big towns like Portsmouth, one has rather a rough crowd to deal with. Good manners may not be required. A dictatorial method is not so much resented. But in a country village, in a residential neighborhood where high and low are accustomed to live in amity, well, I must say candidly, a postmaster who adopts bullying tactics and is always losing his temper. Sir, said Dale earnestly, I do assure you I am not a bully, nor one who is always losing his temper. Yet you gave me the impression of irascibility just now when I drew you. Dale inwardly cursed his stupidity in having allowed himself to be drawn. He had made a mistake that might prove fatal. He felt that the whole point of the affair was being lost sight of. They seemed to have drifted away into a discussion of good and bad manners, while he wanted to get back to the great issue of right and wrong, justice or injustice. And he understood the ever-increasing danger of being condemned on the minor count with the cause itself, the great fundamental principle, remaining unweighed. No one, he said humbly but firmly, regrets it more than I do, gentlemen, if I spoke up too hot. But, sir, and he bowed to Sir John, you were wishing to nettle me, and there's no question that, for the moment, I was nettled. All three judges smiled, and Dale, accepting the smiles as a happy augury, went on with greater confidence. I'm sure I apologize, and I ask you not to turn it to more than its proper consequence, or to make the conclusion that I'm that way as a rule. With all respect, I'd ask you to think that this means a great deal to me, a very great deal and that it has dragged on until, naturally, it begins to prey on one's mind. I am like to that extent shaken and off my balance, but I beg, as no more than is due, gentlemen, that you won't take me for quite the man up here where all strange to what I am down there, where I'm in my element and on my own ground. And I would further submit, under the head of all parties at Rothaven, that there may be a bit of malice behind their report. What malice could there possibly be? they appear to have shown an inclination to pass over the whole matter. Only if I took a black mark, sir. That's where the shoe pinched with me, sir, and perhaps with them, too. They mayn't have been best pleased when I asked to have your decision over theirs. Then the colonel spoke, instead of Sir John. But apart from Rodhaven, we have evidence against you from the village. Your neighbors, Mr. Dale, complain more forcibly than anybody else. Is that so? Dale felt as if he had received a wickedly violent blow in the dark. Of course, and he moved his hands spasmodically, of course, I've long expected I'd enemies. Then he snorted. 
"'But I suppose, sir, you're alluding now to a certain member of Parliament whose name I needn't mention.' "'Yes, I allude to him, and to others, to several others. "'If some have spoken against me, there's a many more who would have spoken for me.' "'But they have not done so,' said the Colonel dryly. For a moment Dale's mental distress was so acute that his ideas seemed to blend in one vast confused whirl. Some answer was imperatively necessary, and no answer could evolve itself. Hesitation would be interpreted as the sign of a guilty conscience, and in this dreadful arrest of his faculties the sense of bodily fatigue accentuated itself till it seemed that it would absolutely crush him. Gentlemen, as I was venturing to say, Really, the pause had been imperceptible. From the vicar downwards, there's many who would have spoke to my credit if I'd asked them. And I did not ask them. And for why? Well, why? Because, said Dale with a brave effort, I relied implicitly on the fair play that would be meted out here. From the hour I knew I was going to be heard at headquarters, I said, this is now between me and headquarters, and I don't require anyone be it the highest in the land coming between us. Ah, I understand, said the colonel, with great politeness. Such was my confident feeling, sir, my full confidence that having heard me, you'd bear me out as doing my duty, and no more nor no less than my duty. Yet even as he said so, his whole brain seemed as if fumes from some horrid corrosive acid were creeping through and through it. In truth, all his confidence had gone, and only his courage remained. These men were hostile to him. They had prejudged him. Their deadly politeness and their airs of suave impartiality could not conceal their abominable intentions. He had trusted them, and they were going to show themselves unworthy of trust. Gentlemen, he said the word very loudly, and again there came the check to the sequence of his ideas. In another whirl of thought he remembered those courtyards at the Abbey House, the loyal service of his wife's family, the great personage who might have spoken up for him. Oh, why hadn't he allowed Mavis to write a second time, imploring aid? Gentlemen, he echoed the word twice, and then was able to go on. My desire has ever been to conduct the service smooth and expeditious, and in strict accordance with the regulations, more particularly as set out in the manual, which I can truly asseverate as, as that I read more constant and careful than what I do the Bible. He knew that the crisis was close upon him. Now or never he must speak the words that should convince and prevail. An instinct told him that he would speak in vain. Nevertheless, he succeeded in stimulating himself adequately for the last great effort. He would fight game, and he would die game. If, he said stoutly, I am at liberty now to make my plain statement of the facts, I do so. It was 7.35 p.m. Miss York was at the instrument. I was here, and he moved a step away. The soldier was there, and he pointed. The soldier began his audacity by, But good gracious, said Sir John, you are going back to the very beginning? For your proper understanding, said Dale, with determination, I must commence at the commencement. If, as promised, I am to be heard, but you have been heard. Your pardon, sir, you have examined me, but I have made no statement. Oh, very well. Sir John, as well as the other two, assumed an attitude of patient boredom. Fire ahead, then, Mr. Dale. And bowing, Dale plunged into his long-pondered oration. 
their three faces told him that he was failing. Not a single point seemed to score. He was muddled, hopeless, but still brave. He struggled on staunchly. With a throbbing at his temples, a prickly heat on his chest, a clammy coldness in his spine, with his voice sounding harsh and querulous or dull and faint, with the sense that all the invisible powers of evil had combined to deride, to defeat, and to destroy him, he struggled on toward the bitterly bitter end of his ordeal. He had nearly got there, was just reaching his man-to-man -man finale, when the judges cut him short. One moment, Mr. Dale. The nice young man had come in, and was talking both to Sir John and the Colonel. Thank you, just for a moment. Of his own accord, Dale had gone back to the window. It was all over. Never mind about the end of the speech. Nothing could have been gained by saying it. The tension of his nerves relaxed, and a wave of sick despair came rolling upward from viscera to brain. He knew now with absolute certainty that right was going to count for nothing. No justice existed in the world. These men were about to decide against him. Yes, and the young man laughed genially. He said I was to offer his apologies. Dale listened to the conversation at the table without attempting to understand it. Somebody, as he gathered dully, was demanding an interview, but the interruption could make no difference. It was all over. He said he wouldn't take no for an answer. Then they all laughed, and Sir John said to the young man, Very well, ask him in. The young man went out, leaving the door open, and Dale saw that the secretary had risen and brought another chair to the table. The footsteps sounded in the corridor, and Sir John and the Colonel smilingly turned their eyes toward the open doorway. Dale, turning his eyes in the same direction, started violently. The newcomer was Mr. Barradine. He shook hands with the gentleman at the table who had both got up to receive him. He talked to them pleasantly and chaffingly, and there was more laughter. Then he nodded to Dale. Then he said he was as much obliged to the secretary for giving him the chair, and then he sat down. Dale's thoughts were like those of a drowning sailor, when through the darkness and the storm he hears the voice of approaching aid. He had been going down in the deep, cruel waters, with the longed-for lights of home, the adored face of his wife, the dreaded gates of hell, all dancing wildly before his eyes. And now, breath again, hope again, life again. He listened, but did not trouble to understand. It was dreamlike, glorious, sublime. The illustrious visitor had alluded to the fact that Jack, the nice young man, was a connection of his, and had explained that, hearing from Jack of today's appointment, he determined to go right down there and beard the lions in their den. He had also spoken of a nephew of Sir John's who was coming to have a bang at the Abbey Partridges in September. He further reminded the colonel that he did not consider himself a stranger because they used to meet often at such and such a place. He also asked if the colonel kept up his writing. Now, without any change of tone, he was talking of the case. And Dale, watching, felt as if his whole heart had been melted, and as if it was streaming across the room in a warm vapor of gratitude. My interest, said Mr. Barradine, is simply public spirit, although it is quite true that I know Mr. Dale personally. Indeed, he and his wife have been friends with me and my family for more years than I care to count. Dale caught his breath and coughed. 
he was almost overwhelmed by the noble turn of that last phrase. Friends. Nothing more and nothing less. Not patron and dependence, but friends. And of course, Mr. Barradine was saying, I want my friend to come out of it all right, as I honestly believe he deserves to come out of it. Dale felt himself on the verge of breaking down and sobbing. His strength had gone long ago, and now all his courage went too. With his gratitude there mingled a cowardly joy that he had not been left to fight things out alone and be beaten. That sucker had come at the supreme moment. Ardently admiring as well as fervently thanking, he watched the friend in need, the splendid ally, the only agent of providence that could have saved him. Who would not admire such a prince? He was old and big, and though rather frail, yet so magnificently grand. His costume was of the plainest character, black satin neck-scarf tied negligently with a pearl pin stuck through it anyhow, a queer sort of black pea-jacket with braid on its edges, square-toed patent-leather boots with white spats, and, nevertheless, he seemed to be dressed as sumptuously as if he had been wearing all the golden glitter of his privy councillor's uniform. His face seemed to Dale like the mask of a Roman emperor, a high-bridged, delicate nose, thin gray hair combed back from a low forehead, a ridge like a straight bar above the tired eyes, and a puffiness of flesh below them, a moustache that showed the lost curves of the mouth, and a small pointed beard that perhaps concealed an unbeautiful protrusion of the chin. His voice, so calm, so evenly modulated, had been trained in the Senate and the palace. His attitude, his manner, his freedom from gesture and emphasis, all indicated a born ruler as well as a born aristocrat. Was it likely that when he spoke he would fail? Already he had swung the balance. Dale could see that he would not be resisted. And as the great man sat talking, chatting one might almost term it, he seemed to be taking out of the atmosphere every element of discomfort, all the passionate excitement, the hot throbs of indignation, the cold tremors of fear. Dale felt his muscles recovering tone, his legs stiffening themselves, his blood circulating richly and freely. "'You have here,' said Mr. Barradine, "'a man of unblemished reputation, who, acting obviously from conscientious motives, has in the exercise of his judgment done so-and-so. Now, admitting for the sake of argument that he has done wrong, are you to punish him for an error of judgment? We do not, however, admit that it was an error.' Dale looked dogged and stern. He had been on the point of saying, I never will admit it, but the words would not come out. He must not interrupt. This was heaven-sent advocacy. Mr. Barradine went on quietly and grandly. In truth, what he said now was almost what had been said by the authorities at Rothaven. Good intentions, overzeal, a mistake if you care to call it so. But from these lips it fell on Dale's ear as soothing music. Mr. Barradine might say whatever he pleased, and the man he was defending would not object. And now if I show the edge of a little private axe that I myself have to grind. Mr. Barradine laughed. They all laughed. Our member, we agree in politics. But, well, you know, he and I do not altogether hit it off. We are both of us getting older than we were, and perhaps we both suffer from swollen head. It's the prevailing malady of the period. Sir John laughed gaily. 
I don't think you show any marked symptoms of it, but I can't answer for what's his name. Well, and Mr. Barradine made his first gesture, just a wave of the right hand. One can't have two kings at Brentford, and honestly I shall feel that you have given me a smack in the face if— Oh, my dear sir! Then they sent Dale out of the room. Really it seemed that they had forgotten his presence, or that they might have banished him before. It was the colonel who suddenly appeared to remember that he was still standing over there by the window. He waited in a large empty room, and the time passed slowly. It was the luncheon hour, and far and near he heard the footsteps of clerks going to or coming from the midday meal. Bigwigs, no doubt, would take their luncheon privately, in small groups here and there, all over the building. He, too, was getting very hungry. An hour passed, an hour and a half, two hours, and then he was again summoned to the other room. There was no one in it except the secretary, looking hot and red after a copious repast, speaking jovially and familiarly, and seeming altogether more common and less important than when under the restraining influence of bigwigs. "'Ah, here you are!' And he chuckled amicably and gave Dale a roguish nod. "'You've had your wires pulled A-1 for you. It's decided to stretch a point in your favor. Not to make a secret, they don't wish to run counter to Mr. B.'s wishes. You have been lucky, Mr. Dale, in having him behind you.' Dale gulped, but did not say anything. "'Very well. I am to inform you that you will be reinstated. But in order to allow the talk to blow over, you will not resume your duties for a fortnight. You will take a fortnight's holiday from now on full pay.' Dale said nothing. He could have said so much. At this moment he felt that his victory had been intrinsically a defeat. But the strength had gone from him and in its place there was only joy, weak but immense joy in the knowledge that all had ended happily, and the world would say that he had won. End of chapter 4. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.